0: If you have a lot of skills, there there are roles out there for you where you can really glue those together and and make something out of it, right? And I think that's kind of like, for me, what I did often was self-reflecting, really, really challenging myself. Hey, what are my key skills? Uh, What are you really good at? And what do you just want to be?
1: Welcome to the ACET podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking we have a somewhat more relaxed intro now but we are still hoping to provide you with thought provoking and stimulating conversations with researchers from all kinds of backgrounds and from all over the world as always you can find out more about us at wwwacid sciencecom and now without any further ado let's jump right in nice and we're recording so hello everyone i'm here with benjamin baghetsi thanks for joining us on the acid science podcast
0: thank you very much for having me Manu. um
1: just to give a short overview uh, over who you are you originally studied neuroscience psychology and philosophy in oxford london singapore and zurich so you've been around quite a lot and by uh, while you're a pretty big science nerd if i make the may take the liberty okay. of saying so uh, you have since moved on to the world of business and you are currently a senior account manager at Google and have previously also worked at Amazon in Seattle and London. And I think this intersection between your academic interests and passions and but also your business interests is, is quite fascinating. And I think there are a lot of to- things we can talk about here. But before we move into that, it, it's quite important that also to, to emphasize that you are the founder and president of ACIT the very acid that this podcast owes its name to so it it seems highly appropriate that we have this conversation here now
0: you're you're flattering me way too much man and then (laughs) I'll only say nonsense later on and people will be (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: so maybe we can just start with a with a business world and and maybe to to go into your motivations about your transitions what what made you Mm -hmm. move into the world of business and what fascinates you about it how can we understand this, maybe on a personal level?
0: Gladly, gladly. So I think if we if you look back in time a bit, like um, when I was studying like neuroscience, psychology, I like my life was all about you know um, finding out truth in the world. It was all about like investigating the world, exploring it, and understanding uh, what's going on for me specifically in the human mind and in human environments when humans uh, come together when they form groups. It was just really like my greatest passion was to understand it from a historical perspective, from an anthropological perspective, uh, and so forth. And then after, uh, so for many years, actually, for me, it was very clear I would would eventually end up going into academia, research, and trying to become a professor one day. But then kind of like as I entered academia, I, I realized that some processes were a bit too slow for me. It was a bit too bureaucratic for me. And so kind of I realized that that I was missing something. So I was kind of missing the the drivenness and the efficiency and effectiveness um of academic research a bit. And to, to be very honest with you, like I there's no day that passes where I'm not fully convinced that one day I'll return and at least do a PhD or maybe even uh, stay in academia for longer. But for me back at the time it was just really, okay, come on, let's see what's out there in the business world. Because something I think that really, really drives me is having impact. So I really love um structuring projects thinking about a big vision um, crafting strategy bringing together the right people working data driven and then really creating an impact with that and i think that's kind of like what drove me to the business world as well because i think academia is extremely noble in in its quest for teaching and uncovering the truth about the world but i think also if you're looking for for very strong impact it's usually the business world that has that on the world right if you really think about it um, academia has its highest impact when it's being read by businesses and then being applied uh, and financed. So that's kind of like, I was kind of taken out of my of my beautiful platonic and Socratic world of um, intrinsic philosophy, because for me, science is is a feeder of philosophy. So I'd still consider myself a philosopher primarily and a scientist secondly, who is looking for data to think about. Um yeah, I was kind of taken out of this, of this ancient Greek uh, romanticism, I would say, <laughs> and more like focused on, on, on having impact and the material condition we live in that, well, you need money to, to create impact sometimes. So I would say my, my transition to the business world, uh, I'm still a science nerd, as you beautifully put it, but my transition to the, to the business world was more motivated by seeing if I can create impact with, with, that, uh, with that knowledge I gathered. Uh, always knowing though that i will probably return one day to the academia and so kind of like um when the primary motivator for me was to have impact in the business world i was really clear for me i didn't want to do an assistant role or i didn't want to um didn't want to do something too repetitive so i'm not saying these jobs are not important and if someone enjoys them that's amazing i just know that my from my own uh drivenness and from my own restlessness i needed something that was very um very changing, very, uh, very challenging and well, to some degree uncertain. So I really like working on a big uncertainty. And so basically my first career step after my graduation was actually to apply only for like senior roles and for like team leader roles. So right off the university, uh, I mean, I had some, I did some, uh, I did some projects, uh, mostly entrepreneurial projects in high school and uh, in, in university. One of which, of course, was Acid, the the greatest one I did so far, I would say. Another one uh, was a startup I founded, and basically it was all uh, I had a lot of entrepreneurial experience, but it was still, of course, very tricky to find a to find a, a senior leadership role right after graduation. And so what I did was really like spending uh, the spending my time crawling the internet for uh, for suitable roles, right? And I was really not country bound. So I think that was a big, big help in my career so far, that I didn't care if someone told me to work somewhere completely else, um, as long as I liked the role. And so I ended up in Leipzig, actually, in the end, in Germany, uh, in, a, in a rather younger future research institute, uh, where they were kind of like, emphasizing on the science of understanding where the world is developing towards, uh, where I could do a nice bridge with my experience in entrepreneurial projects, but also as scientific research. And then it's kind of like I managed this first jump uh, within a, a cool company, but with which, which was, of course, not the biggest company out there. But what I got was I got a scope and a role where I was really able to develop skills, where I was really able to take on big projects and, and work on a lot of very important hard and soft skills, uh, ranging from data analysis to team leadership to, um, yeah, to also talking to C-level stakeholders. And I think that's really one career advice I could give to people. That for your first job, uh, you don't really look at the brand or you don't really look at what, what um, other people will think about you if you do it, but you really look about the skills that you will have when you leave that job. Because to be very honest, we don't live in a world anymore where people stay uh, forever in their jobs. And as you know, our next ACID Switzerland event that I'm holding will be about the future of working. Um, This was a little advertisement there in between the podcast. (laughs) So basically, I I would say that um, knowing that you won't spend your entire life in one company just really means that you should make sure that you develop your skills first. Because if you want to work for a big brand company, you can do so like in a later stage of your career still, right? And it doesn't matter when you do it. A career is a career no matter when it happens. So I think the most important part here for me is really Get the skills that you need, right? And I really taught myself that, like, get the skills that you need. And now you might wonder if I had a really good mentor in university or where I know that stuff from. I never had a mentor, to be honest. Um, I I was always kind of like, this sounds so sad now. So, and and then later people find out I like Nietzsche. So I sound like the ultra, (laughs) but uh, I never really had a mentor, to be honest. I never really, I I always did things by myself and very um, independently. And where I got all this knowledge from that I used for my career was really just reading people's stories online, you know, reading blog posts, reading people's self-reflection about people who did PhDs, about people who um, went to brand companies, but in like more like repetitive operational roles. And yeah, I just really read people's stories and I took them seriously, not believing I was better than them, not believing I was worse than them, but just really reading them as people with their own desires, hopes and, and drives in life. <clears throat> and that's kind of like what really helped me, um, having these stories and figuring out which ones suited me, which is why I decided to uh, really try and get into a role with a lot of uh, creative potential. But uh, yeah, then basically after after that um, role in the in the uh, Future Institute, I was then hired by Amazon via LinkedIn. So uh, having a LinkedIn, I think, is also uh, business advice from me. Then Amazon hired me into a a process improvement role across America and Europe, where I was mostly working on making sure that the entire supply chain worked. But I was working on the tech systems behind the supply chain. And now you might wonder how a neuroscientist and psychologist ends up working on Amazon's uh, tech operation systems. Well, it's very easily. um, It's skills, right? I, I, I don't know. I can code a little bit, but I'm not the greatest coder, right? I can I can work with people, but I'm probably not the best um, team coach, right? I can I can project I can structure projects well. I might not also be the best there, but I was the only person probably applying who knew all of it to a, a decent degree, and that's exactly what I said about the skills. So, if you have a lot of skills, um, there there are roles out there for you where you can really glue those together and, and make something out of it, right? And I think that's kind of like. For me, what I did often was self-reflecting, really, really challenging myself. Hey, what are my key skills? Uh, What are you really good at? And what do you just want to be? So for example, for me, for a long time, I wanted to do robotics. I was so fascinated by robotics and AI, and I just wanted to do robotics research. Or I applied for data science uh, jobs because I really thought, hey, I want to be the cool guy who can code, right? But then kind of like, I think my career started taking off when I stopped thinking about what I would like to be in some Hollywood movie, you know. I, was, I stopped thinking about the role I wanted to represent in the world, like the cool coder nerd. But I was really thinking about, hey, from your biological skills, from your history, from your passions, what are you really good at? And then when I wrote that down, I, I remember this. It was entrepreneurial um, leadership leadership. It was project structuring, project management, and it was motivating people and finding consensus within the team and creating harmony. And when I knew these three skills, it was very clear to me that robotics was no longer um, robotics research was something I still feel very passionate about, but maybe not where I'm best situated. And then from then on, I, I just really, uh, when this Amazon role came along, uh, and also I phrased my LinkedIn accordingly. I... I I put my self-description and my self-reflection in the description text. And Amazon really liked it because they looked for someone who can work very techy, but at the same time likes people and at the same time can have a strategic overview. And then, yeah, so I'm, I'm coming to an end now uh, because my career hasn't been that long that it justifies talking any longer about it. But yeah, basically then when I worked for Amazon, I uh, did so in Seattle and across Europe. And uh, eventually uh, decided decided to, to move to Google just because... Um, I, I was happy to return to Zurich uh, back home where I'm living now and where I'm from. Well, not from Zurich, but from Switzerland. And uh, yeah, it also was a cultural move because I think um, the culture of Google is still a bit more representative of the of the curiosity and the, uh, and, uh, um, how do I say this nicely, the, the kindness <laughs> I would like to promote uh, in working with others. Whereas I think found Amazon extremely impressive in how big the projects are. But i didn't get along super well uh, with the culture there so that's i think the last advice i have for people don't feel obliged to stay in a company because you really like the projects um decide by culture so decide by skills and um, that you want to learn and decide by culture uh, you must feel well in your work otherwise it's not work otherwise it's torment so that's i think my my first two key advices i would have to any of our listeners
1: Yes. If- if I just ask like the first question and then we get 15 minutes of beautiful career <laughs> advice, then this podcast is really doing itself. So it <laughs> was a pretty awesome answer. I think there are too many places where we could have like too many interesting ways we could could have continued there. So I'm I'm a little <laughs> confounded now. But maybe <laughs> what I what I was initially thinking about asking, and maybe also relates to what you just described with the work culture, um. Do you think there's like a crucial difference between this work culture and academia, and uh, the work culture that you mentioned in in these big companies? You, you also mentioned this streamlining and this kind of more efficient approach to to develop. And do you think actually that academia could could really learn something here from? Becoming more business-like or do you think it's necessary for academia to to live in this ivory tower kind of Socratic world that you described, and to to develop ideas and then kind of in this closed off idealized space, and then the companies come in and they yeah. take these ideas and do something out of them efficiently.
0: I I think I think we um, I think the question is amazing. I just would like to take a step back and and define the terms a bit because I think business-like is, is a very dangerous assumption that businesses know what they're doing. So I think it's very few businesses that really have their process in check, not saying the ones I work for um, do, but they do it to a a quite satisfactory degree. So I would say uh, my experience is also quite biased because I've been mostly working in the tech industry, which is very famous, right, for rethinking processes, for being very agile, for being people focused. So I think that's kind of like also an important distinction here so i would say yes uh, academia can definitely learn from tech companies as to be honest tech companies learn from academia because for example google kind of the way you work there it's very similar to how you were at university right it's kind of it's kind of similar i think to to being a student and to want to learn uh and, and stuff like that so I would say yes. Um, academia can definitely learn a lot uh, from modern tech companies, but it doesn't just mean any business because I think a lot of businesses they're um, very hierarchically driven. They're very un- unflexible in how they how they operate and how they how they do business. And I think their academia, so depending on the team, depending on the institution, uh, might even be better than some businesses. So I think it's not that easy to make this clear cut. But when you ask me about um, the, if the if the average research groups that I worked with um is um not performing as effectively as the average company I worked at, then yes, for my, my own sample size I can definitely confirm that. Um and I think and I think do think I, I, academia should copy work styles from the business world. So I think it's especially three things that I come to mind here. One is um speed. So I think academia is often very um you know, just people. People are not as rushed, and I think that's good for your well-being, but it's bad for production. So I think finding a good balance between speed and uh, and well-being would be cool for academia. I, fi- I find Google does it very well uh, to find this balance. Amazon is a bit more on the on the speed side and less on the well-being side. Um, but I think, yeah, I think academia is a bit too much on the on the chill side and not enough on the speed side. So here I think a bit more drive. Would be important, and what does drive mean, right? Drive is an individual decision, but it can also be something how you think about the entire institution. So, having clearer deadlines, having having um, having more, you know, not healthy competition in in the sense of you know like really working together and trying to like be better than the other, but like still doing it in a respectful way, right? I think these kind of elements, like a bit more drive, would be great. A second thing I was talking about is maybe this this um financial uh, dependency so it's kind of like right you doing research and then you're kind of waiting for a company to pick it up i mean a lot of startups develop out of academia and i think that's actually really cool if you if you research something for your whole life and then you decide to bring it to the business world or what does the business world mean i mean business world sounds like this this mean uh, <laughs> other realm right where where there's a lot of people um greedy for money i think i think what what you can say is Take it out to the to the civil world rather, just the, the civil life of people, right? Because I think way more people are affected by business um, by businesses offering their services and products than people are affected by what's happening in academia, right? I think academia still, to some degree, is 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 quite um, an elitistic institution where only a, a very small percentage of the world actually cares about what's going on in science, and I think that's. That's also why why I like the business world a bit more because it's really like if you create an impact in the business world you can scale it across the world right you can bring it to people who never had the chance to actually acad- attend academia right and I think that's why that's why I talk about impact uh, with business because business usually um, if you think about products that everyone is using right if you think about you, you can just really, uh, you can think about anything you're using uh, every day. I'm not trying to make examples now because the first thing I wanted to say was Google search. So I shouldn't say that. Uh, but yeah, you just think about things that people um, use in their daily life, right? I think it's quite amazing how how scaled your impact can be. And I think academia is not as scaled as that. But it could be if more people had the courage, I think, to transform their to transform their research into an answer to a problem in the world and then really provide that um, to people so i think uh yeah one is a bit drive i thought academia for my, for my for my taste was a bit not driven enough or not not the speed component was a bit lacking and please manu uh, you as a as a very um very successful um phd researcher please correct me if this is wrong but then the second one is yeah i thought it was not so scalable because it's a very small circle of people and i think working on the scalability would be something and then the third part i think in general is it's also a bit about this ivory tower that you mentioned, right? So I think we should we should not be we should not be I I think I think it's a difference in doing science and philosophy for the purpose of solving truths in the world and in just getting citations and uh, and papers that everyone likes, right? So I think there is the ivory tower to some degree you need to keep it because I think it's it's also attractive about academia to have this space to really nurture your thoughts and really develop it. But at the same time, I think oftentimes I'm not sure if the people I met in my research um, time, if they were really caring about finding the truth or if it was more like, hey, I'm doing research because there's nothing else uh, I can think of right now in the business world. Or if it's also just, yeah, yeah, let's me get some publications, then I get promoted. And then I become a professor one day and my salary increases. So if it's these kind of aspirations people have, then I kind of... It's very similar to, to to like the uncool business world, I would say, where people are just working to get promoted and to get their salary. So I think as long as you're really passionate about what you're doing and you believe in a higher cost of what you're doing, it doesn't matter if you're working in a business or in academia. Um, I'm just not... Always so sure if this entire publication system within academia really does justice to the many, many people I know uh, willingly make the sacrifice of earning a bit less in academia compared to business world, seeking, however, a higher cause. And I think that higher cause is is often a bit betrayed because that's also what I felt like. I was really willing to go into research because I was really motivated by the greater cause of like, you know, contributing something to the understanding of the universe. But then kind of like this whole publication system and everything around that, it didn't feel very authentic anymore. And so, yeah, I'm not saying business is more authentic. I'm just saying that since business is more diverse in what you can do there than academia, um, it's easier, I, f- I think, to find, find a place there that that makes you happy probably. So I think, I think academia is also a very tough choice at the end of the day. And I think this is very important to stress. That uh, It's not easy work, right? It's, it's very it's very challenging to stay on top of your projects, to stay on top of your field, whereas in business world, you might just have a, a job that is, is a bit less uh, complex and dynamic than that. So yeah, wrapping this up, I would say that it's very hard to, to make a clear distinction between academia and business. Um, I would just, as I said, just now outline a few key differences that, that just again, from my personal uh, experience that I observed.
1: Yeah, I think I'm I'm not feeling too offended because um, my PhD is more in the AI direction, which I think already is pretty closely linked to to business. I mean, Google and Amazon obviously do a lot of important work, and and famous AI researcher like Jan LeCun are now at Facebook or Google, and actually there's yeah, a lot
0: exactly. of yeah.
1: over, overlap already in that field. So I think the criticisms that you you gave for this ivory tower view. I think hold more strongly for other fields, and I think yeah, academia is also n- not a, a homogeneous structure. Exactly,
0: exactly, yeah.
1: And probably there's yeah a lot of stuff being learned, especially when it comes in, in the in the tech sector of academia. I think it's it's being realized that it's really not a lot of value to, to just sit in your room and develop an amazing algorithm that could help potentially hundreds of millions of people, but no one's yeah. caring about it. So
0: Absolutely. I think this.
1: This thinking about impact is becoming like more strongly realized especially in the ai field because there's so obviously so much impact there
0: but i think also like in here uh, just a very important side mark to to make for our listeners right it doesn't mean that you have to do something related to tech in order to have impact like you can really just if you think about if you find a, a mental health treatment for people if you if you develop a new medication that really helps people if you or even if if it's not only about helping people even if you figure out a, a a fundamental physical truth which can then be used by other people one day to develop something again that makes the world better i think that's all really noble i think the only thing i was saying is when you're doing academic research when you're really committing yourself to this world think about what's the purpose behind it think about what you're doing it for and don't always think the business world is cooler than that, because very often, then not it's it's not. So that I think the key message of me was not to say, "Hey, everyone, leave academia and go work <laughs> uh, in in business." No, I think my key message was um, it is a noble it is a noble cause, but really ask yourself what you're doing it for and, and what's you, what's the goal you have in the end. Because for me, it will be the same. I will leave my my super cool high paying uh, business jobs, and I will go back to being a PhD student one day, and I know that for sure. And I say, hey, that's absolutely okay for me because what I promised myself from 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 diving deep into this literature and diving deep into the human brain and what's happening to consciousness, what's happening to human behavior, um, to emotions, I think that fascinates me so much. That I say, yes, um, that is fine enough for me. And then the question is, the second question I will have to ask myself: okay. What kind of projects you want to do which of them are just for your own pleasure of finding out stuff about the world and which one of them might be giving something back to people across the world right and yeah that was my key message i think not that academia is not cool but that uh, no matter if you're in business or in academia you need a purpose in what you're doing
1: now that we've already mentioned academia so much maybe we can actually Segue to academic topics to to say to, to let it save face in the face of this, um, yeah. Maybe one first question, which still kind of connects to the previous points, is whether you think that really psychological research in the last couple of years, or like if you if you can think of any like, big psychological breakthroughs or insights that have changed the way people uh, you you see. People working best, how to structure work, how to structure maybe teamwork, how to structure teams. Do mm-hmm. you think there's any any big insights on that front that have I, helped you?
0: I think so. I think um, if you talk about psychological like high impact things in general, I mean, um, the very first one you think about will probably be Freud, who really like uh, brought up the discussion that not much of our uh, brain is really under our control, but a lot of it is happening subconscious. And then kind of like the recent work of Daniel Kahneman with the whole cognitive bias literature, um, I think this is kind of goes into the Freudian distinction between a conscious and a subconscious part of the brain. I think that one has become extremely powerful uh, when it comes to HR hiring, right? That you don't have biases in how you hire people. Uh, it's also a lot in marketing, right? How people are biased to like something or not. It's it's in, it's in everything, right? So uh, in group discussions, so for example, groupthink, right? The phenomenon where people um, in groups tend to become more extreme than when they are alone. I think all these reflections on these automatic mechanisms that we have in our brains these well of very often evolutionarily adaptive uh, mechanisms that can however uh, produce wrong outcomes or um, not benevolent outcomes in the in the in the in the modern world. Um, I would say this is a very important literature. So if if one of our listeners hasn't read up on it, uh, please reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, right after this podcast, and I'll send you a, a huge reading list because I think really that's one of the one of the books that really changed my 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 entire worldview. Right, um, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, of course, you always had heard about Freud and the subconscious and the conscious, but I think really what Kahneman did was a was a very disciplined and scientific approach to describing uh this subconscious and its outcomes so to say and i think that's a that's an extremely valuable uh view to have on the world not in the sense and i see this often with people thinking oh yeah everyone else is biased but i am a (laughs) but i am the one only rational in this room (laughs) but more really to develop a humble a humble view saying hey we all have amazing brains uh we all have amazing tools at our command but they're erroneous they they can they can they can make mistakes, right? And so, to see your own st- decision making as a statistical process, where you are quite likely right, but not always, I think it creates a humility and and the, and the humbleness that that really, really um, every team and every business and academia can benefit from. Uh, if you think more about also like. Um, how people can be happy in their roles. I mean, what Google is really doing, and that's also something I really appreciate, Google is taking modern psychological research very serious in how they change their programs and uh, how they approach well-being of of their employees. So for example, in Google, you do psychology tests, right? We had this cool psychology test um, that that is based on Jungian uh, psychology about um, these four colors. I don't know if you know that one. It's just basically, uh, yeah, the red, blue, Uh, yellow and green color which just is a very very of course rough um, estimate of how you are as a person and that's kind of like we did this test just to really see like hey uh, who in our team needs what who in our team um, cares about what kind of things and for example someone maybe likes more to talk about numbers someone really is more on the social side and likes to talk about people first right and then we kind of like um, did that to really understand how we best um, can communicate with each other or other things which we didn't do at Google yet but I think is really strong as for example the big five model in personality psychology uh, which is to date i think one of the of the best proven psych- psychological theories it's basically just about, um, saying that people mostly differ on five dimensions, like openness to new experience, extraversion versus introversion, um, neuroticism, so the emotional stability of people, um, conscientiousness, uh, which is kind of like how diligent you're working, but also like how much drive you have, and then um agreeableness which is like the degree to which you adjust to the to groups and to the opinions of others and i think if you really understand and take this seriously and actually in almost all of my keynotes now i bring this one slide about the big five and uh yeah it will be in the future of working um keynote that will be soon um it's kind of like i think very important to understand that People can change. People can develop in their lives, right? We are not like we are not fully programmed um, machines that just uh, yeah act on impulse only. But I do believe that biology is a very important factor, and certain people are wired in different ways. And I think respecting that and really respecting the individual and their personal needs for how much social closeness is okay for them how much independency is okay for them um how much pressure is impo- is is okay for them i think also what kind of language you know for example depending on who i talk to i might be more like you know provoking the person a bit for fun right yeah like in a, in a very friendly way like saying like oh come on you can do that better and stuff like that right and then the person laughs and is like yeah yeah come on i'm gonna show you whereas with other people i know that saying something like this will probably hurt them and i think that's that's really the empathy that we can learn from psychological research. So I've both things I mentioned now, these examples like psych personality tests or um or cognitive biases, I think it creates empathy for understanding um how other people think, how other people feel, what is important to them, and most importantly, what is different for them than it is for you. Because the world that you see is your world. It's not the world that other people see, right? And I think that's what psychology can teach us, other than of course, self-reflection. It's like looking at yourself and being like, hey, I'm always trying to be the extrovert guy, but maybe I'm not. And that's okay, right? Same like what I said before. I try to be the um I try to be the data analyst and I try to be the data scientist and the coder and robotics guy. So I try to be a very um, analytical and very numbers driven guy. And I would say I'm very, very data driven in how I do things. But for me it's always only important, hey, what does this data say about the next action? What does this data say about the next action step in our project? So for me, I'm a project driver. I'm not the analyst. I'm not the product developer. I'm not the robotics guy. I'm the guy who drives projects. I could work in a robotics development team, but I would be the the one bringing together people. I would be the one structuring ideas. I'm not the one um, who is really like, you know crunching the numbers and really developing the models even though i always wanted to be this right and it's still a hobby of me but i think that's kind of like also what psychology can really can really help us with uh, and a company of course if you really know ourselves and what each other like and what what everyone likes in your team and if you really have the well the courage also to to accept that other people think in different ways i think that's that's where i really see a, a big benefit of psychology for uh, for business yeah definitely
1: yeah, with respect to cognitive biases it's, it's quite interesting there's also this beautiful beautifully named book by carol teffers called mistakes were made but not by me
0: which <laughs> beautifully
1: illustrates this i think yeah if, if we actually understand that everyone is biased including ourselves that can give a lot of empathy and yeah. and help us really understand people better and yeah just not take ourselves too seriously also reminds me of this Jungian perspective of kind of integrating subconscious parts of your personality this Kind of this shadow this this darker part of yourself yeah. that is judgmental and potentially racist and all these kind of things to to really understand that you your own mind has the potential to do that
0: definitely like like knowing that your own mind is capable of very weird uh and sometimes uh, horrible things and also knowing that even if someone has really good intentions they can still make mistakes because the brain is statistically performing and not deterministically i think that's that's uh that's 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 really humbling for yourself as i said before but also makes you understand people better and i think the right approach here is not to tell them oh yeah look you're biased here let me tell you why i'm enlightened but i think the right approach is saying like hey okay cool let's maybe um our group discussion we had let's write it down and objectively let it be reviewed by someone else um to see if we really really have um if you really make make sense here, so I think debiasing practices in HR, in hiring, in business, in promotions and stuff like that, but also as I said before, taking care of taking taking into account like how people um, feel and what they need from personality and emotion research, I think it's super key. So, and one easy way to implement that, by the way, is to just talk to people. So I think communication is just really. The one thing you learn from psychology at the end of the day, to be honest, is really communication, careful communication, empathetic communication, understanding people and asking the right questions to create a nurturing environment for people where they can really express their feelings and where they can really tell you what they need. And then, well, of course, you provide them with what they need if it's possible to to give them uh, purpose and happiness in their roles. I think that's really the biggest benefit that psychology can bring to a business, like really... Um, understanding internally, really understanding how to make people want to stay in your company and how to make people happy. And I think if you think about business and psych- uh, psychology and business on an external level, then of course you have something like marketing, where it's very helpful to know psychological models to develop advertisement um, and negotiations with partnerships um, and stuff like that. So I think there's really, really, really a lot you can do with psychology in a business role if you just. If you just really think about what yourself, what, what you're good at. And if, yeah, again, if there's any podcast listener who's very unsure about their career, who doesn't know where to go next, who's maybe a psychologist and doesn't know how to enter the business world, but also someone who's something entirely different and would make would like to go into a career field that they previously haven't thought about, reach out to me on LinkedIn, really. Like you're talking to a, a psychology and neuroscience guy who who ended up working in tech optimization roles at Amazon and now is doing partnerships at Google. So kind of like, um, yeah, nothing is, nothing is impossible as long as you focus on skills and focus on what you can really do yourself.
1: Yeah. Um, talking about cognitive biases, I think it's also kind of interesting that it's connects our modern psychology or everyday psychology to an evolutionary perspective and we've at one point also co-hosted an event on, on the free energy principle and its relationships to cognitive biases and this it, it, it also gives a nice connection between biases and this evolutionary perspective or this more fundamental perspective on, on cognitive science so can we we can move into this direction a little bit
0: more
1: to talk about the free energy principle since we've already mentioned this a couple of times on this podcast so it it will connect nicely to uh robotics talks and uh, (laughs) ai talks as well
0: yeah gladly gladly so uh so then i would say like let's leave the career world behind and and step back into our ivory tower (laughs) (laughs) so um would you would you like me to to say something specifically or just like talk broadly or
1: um yeah maybe we can just start with a short yeah how, how you would conceptualize the free energy principle not on a purely technical mathematical level yeah. but what you think the key insight from a psychological perspective is and yeah. how it relates to biases
0: okay perfect yeah gladly so i think a first disclaimer here is that i know carl Friston uh, very well personally and i'm a huge fan uh, of him and his and his work so um, always feel free to challenge what i say because i really really fell in love with this theory but basically, the free energy principle on a psychological or neuroscientific level is the idea that the brain is a statistical tool which is testing hypotheses against the evidence we have in the world. Which is a Bayesian brain hypothesis, which is not the first one in the free energy principle. So I will later mention uh, what makes it unique. But basically, the idea here is that the brain. It is said that the brain works by creating hypotheses about the world, like okay, cool, this door here is open. Then your body acts to prove or disprove this hypothesis. So you try to open the door and it's not open. And then you have a prediction error. So your prediction was not accurate, right? And then you update your world model and saying, okay, the door is closed. And then from this updating, action happens again, where you actually, you know, turn the key and open the door. So basically, I think in the free energy principle, what's unique compared to this Bayesian brain hypothesis is really that the idea that perception and action are not two separate processes. So it was very often thought you have you have these models of human behavior where you have like inputs, like stimuli coming in, then you have some kind of processing happening in the brain, and you work with like mental models and representations, and then from that comes action. And in in the free energy principle, or at least Carl Friston's um, approach to it, this these are two unified things so basically like like for Spinoza you have uh, you have race extends and race cogitans as two different sides of the same coin I would say in the free energy principle it's the same with with foreign action so basically um you you really have it's really basically the same from different perspective and so in the free entry principle, also what Carl said, uh, for example, was that you only perceive to act, and I think that's a very, very um, big statement, actually, right? Because if you think about, if you just sit on your balcony and look over the nature and observe what's happening, it's not really clear that you're preparing an action here. But he would say every perception that you make is really just a preparation for action, and uh, and driven by the by the desire to update your world models, to have the correct models about the world, to have the correct um, combinations in your brain of something, something is something, something. So to have these, or when I do X, then Y follows. So having these correct causal relationships and descriptive relationships in your mind is really crucial, of course, from an evolutionary perspective to survive, achieve your goals um, and pass on your genes. And that's basically what the free energy principle would claim, that that everything you do in your life is just a statistical reaction um, to your brain machine, processing information and updating uh, your world models and frequently testing what is happening out there. And how this important to an evolutionary perspective is, of course, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes more sense for humans to be risk averse, or very often it makes more sense for us to avoid dangers and to focus a bit on the negative, for example, and then if you think about cognitive biases, for example, loss aversion in prospect theory, it's again, right? Losses loom larger than gains. So losing something is intrinsically worse for people than not gaining something. And that's kind of like, again, because in evolutionary terms, losing your life is probably worse than not uh, not gaining some additional benefit. It's also why we have negativity bias and why I think a lot of people are unhappy because our brains are just wired to focus more on the negative then on the positive, and then in FEP terms, it would mean just, yeah, uh, your brain is wired more to draw actions based on negative and potentially threatening information than on potential positive and growth information. And so um, in in the talk that Manu and I did together, uh, basically what we did was really comparing also cognitive biases to the uh, to this process in the free energy principle of prediction errors and of model updating, and then if you have something like, for example, the the anchor heuristic, where if you if you if you're asked to estimate, uh, for example, the number of countries in Africa, and before that you heard some random number, you're kind of using that number as an anchor, and then your the num the estimate you're making is closer to that n- random number, which of course is completely um, nonsensical. But it is it is a it is a heuristic that the brain is applying uh, when it has too much uncertainty going on, and so basically this anchor um, again is just the way how in the free energy principle you use some prior, no matter if it's good or bad one, you use some prior and compare it to the world, and then you just try. It just it's a try and error thing, right? Where which brings in the entire reinforcement learning um, research and the whole dopamine research uh, but you're basically comparing your priors so your prior models of the reality to the sensory data that you're getting in and you're um using this to update your model and very important again this is an active inference so you're actively seeking out ways to prove or disprove your models and then kind of like um, adjust your adjust your world and I mean adjusting your world that can happen either by saying, okay, my previous model was wrong, let me create a new one um, that is better. Or it can be that you stick to your old models and you don't want to change. And that's also where a lot of biases come in, that when you um, update your world models, but you don't like what the update suggests, you just reject it and stay within um, your previous knowledge and kind of rationalize um, this other explanation, which brings in things like confirmation bias uh, and recency effects and so forth
1: yeah, I think one crucial uh, term terminology uh, in the free energy principle is uncertainty. Yeah. I think it, it can also really help us maybe also in these current times understand some of the biases induced by our brain being constantly like, forced or having this really strong internal incentive to to reduce this uncertainty again. Yeah. Can you elaborate yeah. on on this how Absolutely. this two problems.
0: I was actually kind of saving this for last uh, but that's perfect, perfect because I, I maybe for the listeners I spent my entire entire time in academic research uh researching uncertainty like that was the only thing I was actually really researching with with a lot of passion and that's really uncertainty you can think about it as a as a state of incomplete information right and that kind of like sounds so abstract and you shouldn't think about it you know as this whenever i hear uncertainty i think about the dark cloud you know this dark cloud kind of like um shying me away from the platonic sun at the end of the cave but it's like it's like i think uncertainty is really something intrinsically built into the world right it's something the world is so complex and dynamic that you always have or almost always have very limited and missing information um, about what's actually going on. And if your decisions were the right one, right? And that's kind of like hindsight, hindsight, hindsight bias and these kind of things that come in there. But basically, um, what I really was looking at is how do people react to uncertainty? And there was things like, okay, how do people change their behavior to uncertainty if they get more tired? That's one of my research projects where the conclusion was, okay, if people get more tired, they just stop caring about uncertainty and they just try to push their current models much stronger. Or um, another project that I sadly didn't get to finish yet was uh, about how does um, uncertainty um, affect uh, motivation? So if you really believe, You can do something, but then a lot of uncertain information exists in the tasks that you want to do. How does this affect your self-confidence and things like that? And so kind of like, of course, why I was also drawn to the free energy principle was why it, it provides a very strong account for uncertainty. So basically, the free energy principle would say that everything that's happening with this active inference happens for the sake of reducing and resolving uncertainty that we have about our internal states, like what's happening within us, but also about um, the world around us. And so I think this drive to reduce uncertainty by acting um, is the core message of active inference, which I would say is the psychological way of describing the free energy principle. So, The free energy principle is a mathematical way of describing properties in the world Um, And then the active inference is just a psychological theory from that, which is based a lot on Helmholtz and other uh, more classic psychologists, but of course also on the Bayesian brain hypothesis. But I think the central message is really, we have an intrinsic desire to resolve uncertainty. We do so by acting upon the world and figuring out new information. And the way to resolve uncertainty is either by lying to ourselves and by creating false models, which are pleasant for us, or by really um, being open and updating your world models um, towards the correct ones.
1: There's a beautiful apparent paradox in there, because in the beginning you mentioned that you really enjoy seeking out uh, these uncertain environments where uncertainty is actually to a degree maximized <laughs> so how, how would you resolve that issue and maybe also connect it to these personality types and this openness dimension where
0: yeah i love love this thank you very much for this yeah and this is also i think something that that I will, I'm actually really interested in, in researching when I uh, when I when I go back to academia. So I've, I'm not sure if it's a problem. I, I, I gave this a lot of thought because also like I realized that for myself, I actually I do everything that my favorite academic theory is saying. I just I, I don't really do it, right? I really love uncertainty. I, I hate it when I know things. I hate it when I when I understand what's going on and if things are controlled. For example, as you know, I also play a lot of strategy games. And for every game, as soon as I, be, I I made it to the world top ranking, right? I stopped the game. I stopped playing it because the uncertainty decreased too much for myself. So then I think to, to resolve this paradox, we can think about two things. Either we define uncertainty wrong here, and I, I didn't use the term uh, carefully enough, or um, it might just be that the theory um, is very closely linked to certain personality traits, as you said. So if we explore the second idea first, Um, I mean, of course, there's like openness to new experience um, within the big five personality factors. And I think being open to new experience kind of like means that you love a part of uncertainty, right? So it's kind of means that you really love um, being in ambiguous situations and really... Um, yeah also having a sensation seeking personality maybe where you're really trying to get in a lot of information a lot of new stimuli and so just trying out something new I mean everyone does that right like just okay cool let's this weekend let's go somewhere we never went before so to some degree this uncertainty is also very alluring right and I think it just differs in how open people are to new experiences how much they're seeking this out so I think then going back to the first um, hypothesis I had about uncertainty being wrongly defined, I think that might be that might be the actual the actual issue here. So maybe uncertainty is not so much about not knowing. Um, or maybe it's it's uncertainty is more about really having incomplete information to make good decisions because even if i say hey let's go somewhere i don't know about you kind of still you know you kind of still know where you're going you kind of still you have been traveling before right you kind of still have an idea of how you're gonna approach things and i think it's the same for me so i love seeking out uncertainty but i mean I would also not just throw away my job now and end my relationship just to be in a state of complete uncertainty, what's going to happen in my life next. So I think there is a, there is a, there is a degree here. It's not a one-zero binary thing. It's a degree where things change from exploring the unknown towards actually scary uncertainty. And I think people there are people who thrive more under uncertainty than others, but I do believe that at the core of it, right, very few people would actually like to seek out very strong uncertainty about what's happening. So I think to some degree you could also say enjoying uncertainty is a privilege because it means that you're probably confident about your life, that you have a backup plan if things go wrong, right? I think if you're really living in very strong uncertainty and you're not sure how to get food on the table next day or you're not sure if this next decision will end your career or not, I think finding people who really enjoy that and do not show some sign of, let's say, unhealthy sensation-seeking, it's going to be very tricky. So I think um, the paradox can be resolved if we stop thinking about uncertainty as a a yes or no thing, but as a gradual um, degree, where some degree of uncertainty can be enjoyable for people seeking openness, but overall, um, a very strong degree of uncertainty is probably something people would like to, to avoid. And I think it's also... Within a materialistic context, so I think taking away from the FEP and bringing it more to a sociological perspective, maybe um, I think again it's, it's tied. The uncertainty is tied to the outcome of the gamble you're playing. So if you're uncertain about a very important life decision, I don't think people really enjoyed it. I think there's still there's still a lot of um, thought about the consequences of the action, which is where this whole loss aversion topics comes back in. So I think. I think what I would say is that uncertainty is a degree, another binary variable. And also, I would say uncertainty is always related to its outcomes. And if the outcomes are not so valuable to you, then maybe the uncertainty can be pleasant to you, right? But if the outcomes are really, really key for you, I do not think that you ever want to experience uncertainty. So basically, I think we have to think about the triangle of uncertainty, the outcomes of the decision you're about to make and also your utility function, like how you think about the world and what you value.
1: Yeah, you you used an important word here, gamble, which relates the whole question of uncertainty also to dopamine. I don't know if you if you uh, read some of the literature there, but it's something I've been thinking about as well recently that dopamine really is. It's not about pleasure and reward, but it's more about these prediction errors, actually, yeah. like reward prediction errors and relates nicely to this kind of dopamine is also involved in addictions for example because when you play roulette for example you have this you have great uncertainty but uncertainty to to a degree where it can like perfectly uh, is on the edge between giving you a really nice reward that is, is awesome for you, but also the po- potential for losing something. But yeah. if you shift the odds here too much, if, if there's basically no, no chance of winning anything, then this uncertainty doesn't give you that kick anymore. So it's probably thriving in these situations, as, as you also described where dopamine is maximized, and then it has kind of this like strong addictive, almost component of you could succeed, but you could potentially also not succeed, and there's also always novelty involved and always novelty coming from yeah. that.
0: No, but no, but actually, I, like I'm I'm very familiar with the literature. Actually, I I wrote a, a big ch- chunk of my graduation thesis uh, on, on dopamine in, in prediction errors, um, and also uh, when I was in Singapore, uh, we we desperately tried to find Um, The genetic markers, Uh, I was working on a gene project where you were looking for the genetic markers that distinguish dopamine used in something like the hippocampus activation and memory versus dopamine involved in actual um, uncertainty related gambling. So that was was a big project I was working on. MAOA 2 was uh, our candidate, but of course, this is a still work in progress, again, that I plan to pick up and finish once I hopefully return uh, to academia. But going back to what you said, I, I think it's very important. Like dopamine, I think dopamine is, to me, right, it's, it's, it's the most fascinating neurotransmitter uh, in the brain. I think, I, I mentioned this before, I think as well, like the whole updating process. I mentioned that this ties to uh, reinforcement learning and to the whole dopamine literature I think I quickly mentioned this when I was talking about the FEP. So I do believe that this whole these dopamine circuits, I from the literature I, I reviewed, I, I do believe it's, it's actually the carrier to some degree of these prediction error updating loops. And that also, of course, means that people with um, – that also means that you can again think about, okay, how can we time – Tie uh, different levels of dopamine in the brain to different personality types, right? Might that actually be a key driver of how the Big Five are biologically implemented, right? Or maybe people with higher level of dopamine quicker able to update their world models, therefore um, getting getting more easily bored, therefore being more sensation seeking and like also more open to new experience, and might um, we know that dopamine higher levels of dopamine are also associated with higher risk seeking, so that would of course be um, yeah, it would be, would be an interesting view. And I think dopamine has been described as wanting, as seeking, but also as prediction errors. So I think, again, here I wouldn't approach it binary. I would say, okay, cool, dopamine is, is capable enough of doing both. So I would say at the same time, dopamine could be a wanting driver, but it could also be these prediction error uh, drivers. And I mean, the only, the only world where you need re- to decide between um, these two theories is when you say, okay, the entire brain is only governed by a prediction error system, whereas when you say, okay, cool, the FEP is one of, let's say, b- three theories that describe the Bay fully, then kind of like you can also have multifunctions uh, for for one neurotransmitter. And that's, I think, also like my intrinsic quest I hope to do in my PhD, um, really finding out whether the FEP is like, the one theory to describe the brain or if it's like one of many um that together can explain the brain well like one of a few meta theories or if at the end of the day um it might not be true I, I don't believe so but a scientist should always be open to uh to throw away their theories of course
1: yeah, and sometimes the the problem with two uh like unifying theories is that they at some edge cases or in some cases, exactly. are not the most useful way of describing things, even though it might be true on a fundamental level. It's like it, de- taking the Schrodinger equation to, to describe like personality types is quite useless. I just
0: want, yeah, I just want to say like when you were, when you were talking when you were talking about uh, the different description levels and uh and uh, the problem of combining them I've, i I, can, I could hear your pain as a physicist or as a former physicist uh, when you think about quantum physics and einstein's relativity theory yeah um
1: yeah it's actually quite interesting i didn't know that you were so looking so much into dopamine it's also like from, from my personal experience working in, in the direction of mental health, it's also like believed to be involved in pretty much all mental illnesses from schizophrenia to HDHD to obsessive compulsive disorder. So, dopamine seems to be really key here and shaping the way our brain functions. And I think you also ma- mentioned that kind of there's this very interesting mutation at I think in dopamine D2 receptors that makes people. Much more risk-seeking, and like a lot of the people wingsuiting away and uh, dying from by from jumping off buildings, have this mutation, which you can actually weirdly enough. This mutation is like a high predictor for dying like thirty years earlier than you would usually do, just because like your dopamine sensitivity is is weirdly adjusted here.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I, and I think that's what I was trying to say, right? Like. We, we don't need to think about, you know, if you read something like this bias literature or if you read something like the FAP, you could think, oh, okay, being more uncertainty resolving is better, you know, or you could think something like, okay, um, being more rational, less emotion focused is better. Or you could always come up with these better or worse um, ideas, but I think that's not what I care about. I, I don't study neuroscience and psychology to talk about what's better and worse. Uh, I think I've, what really I care about is, okay, understanding and doing justice to the fact that a lot of people are very differently wired. A lot of people have very different skills, hopes, pains, and other things in their life. And then really thinking about how to help these people. For example, as you mentioned, if we if we find out that a certain mutation is causing higher suicide rates, the next question will be, okay, cool, is there a treatment for that, right? Could we, could we think about, I remember when I was in Singapore, there was this um, project I wanted to do with these uh, metal plates that you put on your brain and then kind of like um, send electrical discharges into brain regions known to be associated with uh, over overproduction of dopamine and kind of block it from producing so people could stop their addictions, right? And of course, this sounds super science fiction and scary when you think about sending, um, sending electrical discharges into people's brain to stop them from their addictions. But I mean, this idea, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying... These kind of ideas, and to link it back to the beginning of our podcast, this is kind of like, I think, what you should think about. So if, you, if you're if you a researcher at the beginning, I mean, where we talked about business versus academia. So when you really um, think about, okay, cool, I found out now very certainly that this mutation is causing people to commit suicide. What can I do? And then to really think about in technological terms or also getting someone on board who knows it if you're not so good with that um, and really thinking about how to shape this into a new gift to the world into a new betterment and into something you can you can really scale across the world i think that's something academia should concern itself more to so exactly what you just mentioned just making the next step and thinking okay how can we actually use this to create value across the world and not just make it disappear um in the in the university folders only be read only to be read by a few um people across the world I'm
1: a little mindful of your time now because we said we want to talk for one hour and we still have Nietzsche and Ace to cover. So. Oh,
0: no, no, no. I, I really, that's absolutely fine. Like, it's uh, I, I have, I have, uh, I'm, I'm off today. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's my fault for talking so, so much. So, no, no, no. <laughs> let's go on. That's absolutely fine. no, no.
1: I mean, it, it, I think we could also talk about these psychology and neuroscience topics for many more hours.
0: For another five hours.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, to to move more into philosophical direction because it's also like a big passion mm-hmm. of yours and a common passion of us. So I mean, what is, who is, or uh, like, what is your favorite philosophical theory, if there's any, or if, if it actually makes sense to phrase it that way.
0: Yeah.
1: And how does it help you? Maybe also in just from a day to day basis.
0: I think again, being being not a very black and white person, but really living in the gray zones. I do not have like one favorite theory i would say i would say authors r- that that really really um inspired me were well nietzsche uh, that for sure um then i think i would also say like i really liked spinoza and his uh his his uh, ethics like where he tried to find a mathematical proof for how to live your life i'm not saying i actually agree with him but i just found the project so beautiful where we really tried to break it down and then kind of like, I'm also like, a uh, very deeply read into the Buddhist and Confucian literature. So, and I also um, I lived uh, many, many years um, in East Asia. So I think also that's a, that's a big impact on me. Like I, I really try to understand um, Chinese uh, thinking, for example, modern Chinese thinking by reading deeply into Confucian literature and um, the system that lies behind it. I also read very deeply into, into um Buddhism, which in the West um, has, uh, well, influenced a lot of existentialism, I would say, like something like Schopenhauer or also like uh, Hermann Hesse with his book Siddhartha and uh, and Steppenwolf. So these are kind of like, I think, really key influences on me. But if you really would say, okay, what's the number one biggest influence? It's definitely going to be Nietzsche. Like, I cannot lie about it. I know it's, very, it's a very tricky topic because... I think the greatest weirdos in the world are Nietzsche fans. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think I think I think yeah I think um Nietzsche's philosophy also draws a lot of very extreme people to it but I still do believe that you shouldn't judge a philosophy by by the people who like it but you should judge it intrinsically. And I just think what Nietzsche did in analyzing the world, in critically analyzing human nature, and I'm not even talking about Thus Spoke Sarah which is more like, you know, a very radical book. I'm really talking about Beyond Good and Evil or the Genealogy of Morals, which I think are his two greatest books. I just think the clearness of his thinking and how he, at the same time, writes very, very annoyingly, uh, metaphorically, but also very clearly at the end of the day, I think it's fascinating how he speaks to emotion uh, more than rationality. And I and as a person who usually really reads a lot about, you know, who really reads things rationally and data-driven, I really enjoy Nietzschean um, philosophy as a, as a complementary way uh, to that. The same way I really enjoy Buddhist literature um, as a complementary view to my scientific view. Um, Just, yeah, again, in the hope of not being distracted. So to answer your question precisely, I think the three sources that influenced my my philosophy the most were Nietzsche, neuroscience, um, and um, at the end of the day, Confucian and Buddhist literature.
1: I think the issue with Nietzsche is that he was just such an amazing writer and made such great use of... Probably one of the greatest writers of the German language ever saw, and
0: I believe so. Yeah,
1: also makes him kind of yeah. Sometimes maybe too appealing, or he he's a lot of people are drawn to him because there's also a lot of stuff found in him and his metaphorical, allegorical style makes him like easy to to misquote, to misunderstand. Uh, um, ah. I had a I had a uh-huh. Nietzsche seminar at one point, and he had that he, he quoted that brilliant quote. So whoever is quoting Nietzsche is lying. <laughs> uh, referring to the fact that at a different point in Nietzsche's work, you you probably found the opposite
0: statement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Pretty... No, no. And I remember also when I when I once uh, I attended the 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 annual Nietzsche Colloquium in Sius Maria, where where Nietzsche lived, and uh, that like a Nietzsche Congress, and they're also like. I found it hilarious when kind of like you know the, the the if you look at the people there right you had you had like such a diverse audience right even within the academic uh, researchers like people really reading Nietzsche in different ways and I mean Nietzsche really as soon as you have as soon as you have any cause in your life that separates you from other people, you can bring Nietzsche into it, right? Because he always talks about, you know, you being this lone wolf and, um, you know, there's the masses out there who don't understand you and stuff like that. So I think as soon as you as soon as soon you have uh, anything you believe in, uh, strongly believe in, you can just take out Nietzsche and apply it to yourself, which is also, again, funny because Nietzsche was deconstructing a lot of things and you also really find people... Um, liking Nietzsche, even though he he clearly deconstructed um, what they probably believe in, right? And so what you said is absolutely true. Like, I would never say that I really understand Nietzsche. I would just say that I like what I think about when I'm reading Nietzsche. So it's basically like he's an inspiration for a journey of thought, I think. So, for example, when he analyzes um how uh, if he analyzes the the way of suffering in life i'm not thinking about okay cool that makes uh, me now better than others again no i just really intrinsically like it um to think about uh what nietzsche is writing or also when he talks about that there's no objective truth there's only interpretation i mean what the hell is that supposed to mean but then really letting yourself go um on that journey and really kind of applying it to yourself i think that's really cool so i would say in summary a healthy way of reading Nietzsche is one of self-reflection. A probably more unhealthy way of reading Nietzsche is reading his parts where he really talks about the distinguishing of higher humans versus uh, the masses, which I think can go down a dark road very quickly if you only focus uh, on those parts in his philosophy. And I think yeah. it's very important to say that Nietzsche was probably a, a quite sad character, right? He was probably a quite frustrated and and depressed. I would say he was quite a... Bipolar and uh, frustrated person, uh, and I think that's reflected in his books. Right, you have this really these highs of him, like um, like Dust Books, Buch Fustra, which is a very dopamine active and a wild book, I would say, and you have these very cold and calm books like uh, Beyond Good and Evil, where you probably can see, okay, now he's really more like an analyst. So that's also think I think about Nietzsche, like he's he's everything from a critical rational analyst to a super emotional um hyped hyped writer who's more like concerned with epicness than i think actual facts and so i think that diversity of how nietzsche was thinking feeling and writing i think that really makes him so appealing to me and again i think reading nietzsche is i think reading nietzsche should be the start of every philosophy uh, education because it's kind of like teaches you from the beginning hey probably everything you're going to read later is is trash but you need some meaning in your life. You cannot just live without any meaning. So uh, I, I like I like to start with Nietzsche and philosophy and have your philosophy, your worldview deconstructed, and then reading other offers uh, on your quest to find still find some purpose uh, in this in this godless world. <laughs>
1: yeah. Maybe a, a small consolation for people that feel like they don't understand Nietzsche's, that he probably also didn't understand himself to a degree. <laughs> I mean, I think he was so constantly confronted with the mystery of, of reality and with his own mystery, basically, that he it feels like he needed to write more like an artist needs to, to craft something. Yeah, yeah. This, this whole idea of philosopher as poet, I think, is, is something that Nietzsche really encapsulates and which is such a stark contrast to to this Kantian vision or this Hegelian vision of, of this like structured scientific model of the world.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And as I said, I think Nietzsche was a very driven... As you said, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, I think, was a very driven person with a lot of emotions. And I think for him, writing these books was also a form of therapy. And I think they're a genius form of therapy in the end. But you should also, you should also just not buy everything written in these books, but you should really read it and think about what you take out of it i think that's the healthiest approach to philosophy in general you should not you should you should not do philosophy to found a fan club for someone you should you should like ideas and then if you like some ideas of nietzsche and some ideas of kant for example you just take the two ideas you like you don't care that the two wouldn't agree with each other you just take the parts that you like and then you craft your your own model of the world in the hope that it's the correct one, which is again linking us back to the free energy principle. And actually, if you think about it, Nietzsche writes a lot in his books about uh, about the subconscious. So many people also have accused Freud of having stolen the idea of the subconscious from Nietzsche because Nietzsche predated Freud. And um, Nietzsche really wrote a lot about this distinguishing of a conscious and a subconscious part of the brain. And so again, I think when you say that Nietzsche was uh, more a poet and like didn't understand himself it is exactly because I think he was honest with himself that a lot of his thinking was not controlled by himself but by something well <laughs> that's the big uh, mystery of the subconscious right like by just some processing happening that he couldn't really access and I think um in the end of the day like a lot of people are are, are are Friedrich Nietzsche's, right? They, they have a lot of ideas, very contradicting ideas. They also have contradicting values and beliefs. And if they would just write everything down in a very self-critical way, I think you would also find um, more radical thoughts, but also crystal clear thoughts in your own writings. So I think, uh, yeah, what I, what I like about Nietzsche is that he writes a lot about being overhuman, um, but in the end, I think he was human all too human. And that's, I think, what makes him very likable for me.
1: Yeah, it's the menschliche, also menschliche perspective.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Maybe there, also from a Jungian perspective, the, this whole idea of the unconscious was already hanging in the air, and the collective yeah. unconscious of, of mankind was just waiting to be discovered.
0: It's waiting to be discovered. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, where we can now move on to to it, sure. which it sure. which do a little bit of self-advertising but also <laughs> to, to, to bring people i think people have already if they have listened this far realized that we quite enjoy talking about ideas and absolutely like living living this exchange and i think this podcast is also one of our forums that is meant to serve exactly that purpose but we can start more historically why did you found acid initially mm-hmm. and okay. yeah.
0: i think i think uh, so i, I i'm going to be very honest here this is going to be a very honest uh, uh, approach because i do value honesty and truth as you see i like to deconstruct everything but also there are some values i i cling to <laughs> mm-hmm. so i think the origin of acid was very simple uh it was just me walking through zurich and with friends like on an individual basis like meeting someone who studied sociology for example uh, remus hey to you if you're listening to this just walking around with him in zurich and talking about um sociology and learning from that person about sociology so i was so i was so hungry for knowledge right i was like studying psychology and i realized every science in itself is worthless. You really have to connect it to the bigger picture to understand what your science actually means in the world. So I realized if I only stay a psychologist, I'm never going to be a good psychologist. And so I kind of really wanted to understand what other people were thinking. So I met a lot of people always. Like I met um, people who were... Um, working on AI development, right? And really talked with them about it and really tried to understand is artificial intelligence actually anything to do with the intelligence we talk about in psychology? I, I met with sociologists and tried to understand how their more more culture and society level thinking, how it relates to the uh, psychological, individualistic perspective um, in psychology and also how you can differentiate sociology with social psychology and stuff like that. Or I met a really really great friend of mine. And she was she was a, a very avid Nietzsche reader. And she was really, really a huge Nietzsche fan. And I, I back then, I was still like in this gray limbo where I was like, okay, cool. Um, like everyone is great, right? And so it's kind of like also very nice to meet people who have very strong um, beliefs. And I just really met so often um, for for walks in a park with people that one day, I really, I remember that. I just got up uh, in the morning and and I realized, hey, wait if I enjoy this so much and it's very inefficient to meet these people individually, why don't I just make a discussion group where all these people can come together? And then in the discussion of, of different people, um, there will also unravel new thoughts that I wouldn't think about. Right. So it was, I think Acid was founded to be very honest um, on a combination of, of my, my curiosity uh, for on my first for new knowledge, but also, um, but also my I would say humility at the end of the day uh, of saying, hey, I probably. Uh, don't ask the best questions to all these people. Maybe if I bring other people in this room, they will ask better questions than me. And so that's also how the first ACIP meetings happened. I was usually more in the back and just letting people speak and sometimes said something. So I was more of a moderator. And in the beginning, ACIP meetings, they started um, in my living room, uh, just in my flat in Zurich. Uh, And then at one point, uh, there was, of course, in pre-corona times where you could still do these cool uh, cool kind of things. And then... um, at one point of time uh, more and more people joined and more and more people brought their friends and suddenly uh, our my living room was just not big enough anymore to contain all these people and then we started it was summer and we started um going to the park to the Irkru park which is still my favorite park in in zurich and we just did tours there we just walked like in smaller groups across around this uh, park for like five six seven eight nine ten times and just discussed the topic within science philosophy or business and I think that's the very origins of, of ACID, how it started. Like it was a discussion group and it was meant to be a bridge between academic disciplines and a bridge beyond um, just studying one thing. And then kind of like ACID developed and we we started doing more entrepreneurial projects. So we had this sport association we found in Zurich because we thought, okay, cool, having a, a, a healthy mind is great, but let's also focus on having a healthy body so we were doing this and then we were also um trying to have more impact um, on, a, on the education level so we were thinking like okay cool um let's also think about um doing social impact projects in africa and help people in uganda children in uganda go to school so we, we were doing a a um a uh, crowdfunding there to, to make this real and then also the University of Zurich they, and ETH they um, gave us um, how do you say this they acknowledged us as their own school club. So we kind of like were suddenly having university lecture halls where we can really doing talks, like a professor was giving talks to, to students. We really had this kind of facility suddenly. And then things really grew organically and they grew very uncontrolled, I would say. So we were just really open for any project we could do as long as it was related to like education and kind of developing uh, developing something to provide to other people. And so kind of like also like, um, there was a big Manu, you will smile now. I think there was a big challenge in making our webpage because we had so many, uh, so wow. many different projects we were working on. Right, that it was very hard to to crystal clear say what Acid is, and so it started really as a as a discussion group between intellectual thinkers, then developed more into an entrepreneurial hub for trying out ideas with a, with a network of driven and smart people, and then kind of like in 2000 I would say 2019 Manu right or was it 2018 when we really really started the big vision revamp and everything I think 2019 I think 19 yeah yeah and then in 2019 really it was more like this this big revamp where we were rebranding ourselves as acid Global because we didn't want to be only Switzerland based we wanted to become global and then we also took both the, the orig, origins uh, with discussion groups that are so important to ACID, but also this entrepreneurial spirit that we for, uh, that we were forming in the next years. And really, we're thinking about, okay, let's do a reboot of ACID structures across the world. Let's really start expanding. So now, as you all know, we have, um, we have our branches in Germany and Switzerland. We have branches in Belgium and in Canada. Um, we're also working on a Beijing branch and on an Irish branch. We once had an Oxford branch, which sadly kind of died off because no one stays in Oxford after graduation, and now people are working all over the place. But basically, it's kind of like um, we also working on a Yale branch that's going to open, I think this or next year. Um, so it's kind of like really this idea of making Acid global. And I think what we're really need to see here is it started as a completely um, chaotic and and just casual discussion group in in my flat, right? That was the origin of Acid. And we kind of try to keep this, this casual and nice spirit, but of course also combine it with Google best practices and Amazon best practices. So I think a lot of the way how um, how ACID is operating and managed on a global scale, I just copy it from Google. Like well-being wise, definitely from Google and also took some things from Amazon when it's about efficiency, right? And I think um, you can feel that ACID is really, really managed in a way that uh, it combines different... Uh, Tech, tech, um, tech ways of, of working, and so yeah. Uh, if you ask me about the history of Acid, it's really a development from a casual discussion group in Swiss or in Zurich only, towards a bit more professionalized club at universities across Switzerland, and then also developing into an entrepreneurial hub for anyone, everyone's crazy ideas as long as they create an impact for people in the world. So as long as they have a social benefit, and then after some years of just really doing everything we could, just really more for the fun of it and for the impact, of course. Uh, we really did this large reboot in 2019, uh, creating ACID Global and seeing Switzerland as one hub, but then also expanding, as we said now, into other uh, countries, really with the vision of providing a nonprofit community and network to the world that is dedicated to spreading free education Um, by yeah by providing uh, our online content like this podcast by providing youtube videos by providing coaching about careers and phds and whatever else but also by really still sparking meaningful discussions around science business and philosophy and yeah i would say that is as it in a nutshell a a a grown grown discussion group from a zurich flat but at the same time also more and more a professionalized institution really seeking to make some good impact in the world with free education
1: yeah and it's from the perspective of of me as someone who has been with ACET now since 2019 with a global revamp and with this developing this new vision and these new practices I think it's it's also an incredibly exciting journey to to do and i think it's still very fascinating because we have this scientific discussions just as we had now but it's also really interesting to to just do something like that (laughs) to to have maybe the audacity or the naivety or, or both to just like think of of doing something that sounds so amazing on paper like getting this international network going and just meeting people all over the globe and having an exchange of ideas with like all of these people but doing it in a like a structured and like scalable way
0: yeah absolutely so, and i think I think that's exactly again maybe when you can go back again to to really our academia and business discussion right i think that's exactly where i see the future of academia so you still stay true to your roots of this Um, discussion and this ivory tower thinking you should keep that as I think ACID needs to keep its meaningful discussions right ACID cannot only become a, a content provider I think ACID is really about the discussion and the people right and I think staying true to these roots but making it better by applying best practices from business is the same I would do for academia stay stay true to your roots but learn from the business best practices to make your processes better And I think that's exactly um, also, how we try to how we try to work at Acid. So it's a very very non-hierarchical, agile development that we try to nurture. And yeah, if really if anyone is interested listening to this, like please um, please send me uh, uh, reach out to me. Like uh, I would really be happy to to welcome new people to the team. We're really growing quickly. I think at the moment we have ten new roles open uh, in total. So yeah, uh, and we have ten new roles open because we need ten new people. It's not just for fun. So we're really really growing quickly and. <laughs> Yeah, if anyone wants to be part of this journey, uh, please reach out to me and I would be very happy, very happy to talk to you.
1: Yeah. And we are now starting to develop also the opportunities to uh, t- just tune in for a shorter time if you don't have the capacity yeah, for exactly. like a really long term. Yeah.
0: yeah. Exactly. So that's uh, maybe yeah, we can just lose a second. So what we're going to do in ASAT soon is uh, we're going to have these these excellency programs, like which really like for students... It's like a program where we de- provide them with the with the opportunity to develop skills, right? So it's a voluntary project, ACID. We also never charge anyone for anything. And our global operations, to be very honest, are run by by my wallet. So every cost that happens, I just pay for it myself. Unless, of course, sometimes for one event, we have sponsors. But on a global level, like the day-to-day things, if there are any costs, then I'm paying for them. And so Acid is really a nonprofit and I will, I, I really never want to charge people for being part of Acid, right? Because I think the project started as an intrinsical project to, to further interdisciplinary discussions. And I think charging for that sounds sounds wrong. And so that's kind of like why it's a voluntary basis. We also have to respect that people working here, um, they're giving us a lot. They're doing this for the sole purpose of, of making the world a better place, right? And I think that's a very honorable uh, all the people working in ACID. I'm really, really grateful, of course, also for all the people who like this idea and who want to make this project become reality. But now we also thought about, okay, how can we kind of give people something back other than just intrinsic um, value? And we're kind, of giving, uh, we're kind of starting this skill program where we're really giving official ACID certificates uh, to people who do, who stay in ACID for half a year or for a year and really do their role, right? And then we kind of really... Um, I, I testify this with, with written letters and recommendation letters and everything else that may be attractive to people. So I think that's really like uh, also the big idea where we have we have grown to a degree and our brand is recognized to a degree where we can also really start thinking about things like this. And I think that's super cool. Again, I always have in mind these times where we were like five people in my living room and now we're talking about global, global uh, organization and kind of like starting these... Uh, these certificate programs and these training programs. And I just really think that it shows again, that if you're passionate about something and just keep doing it, your passion was sp- uh, jump over to other people and, and spark them as well. And then if you just have a small core group of a few people who really, really believe in something, you can make a lot work, uh, a lot of work. And that's again, a shout out to academia. If you have just five people in your team, but you all really believe in an idea, do a startup and, and go to the business world. Uh, it's, yeah, five people or just three people um, or just one person with a strong vision and the willingness to make something happen, uh, they can go very far.
1: Yeah, I think this is a beautiful way to wrap this up yeah, because I <laughs> also my, my lunch is that's a very, very high closet.
0: priority. <laughs> your, your, your utility function and dopamine are spiking right now i think yeah
1: <laughs> and my parents are sending <laughs> angry messages like the perks of
0: of going uh, <laughs> uh, visiting home for the easter break yeah. perfect no yeah thank you very much manu for this for this great podcast like i'm frequently listening in to the amazing podcasts you're doing and uh, now it's a big big uh, honor for me as well to to be on one myself so thank you very much for this
1: yeah, this was a super cool conversation and maybe we can do this at a different point again oh, i think lovely. we still have stuff to talk about and-
0: <laughs> we always do <laughs>